usher in the kingdom of God. That this was his motivation behind every teaching, healing, and exorcism. And so today what I want to do is look at this parable found in Luke chapter 14 that we might catch just a glimpse of the kingdom, just a a glimpse of the kingdom of God that we as its citizens might understand how we are to live today in light of what Jesus taught in the scriptures. So if you would take and turn to Luke chapter 14, and as you do, I want to give kind of a summary sentence that if you grab this one idea, then you can understand and take home Luke chapter 14 and have it wrapped up in your pocket that the kingdom citizens have counted the cost of discipleship and are willing to sacrifice everything. Thank you, baby. That the kingdom citizens have counted the cost of discipleship and are willing to sacrifice everything. To put it another way, that kingdom citizens are committed to Christ no matter the cost. So now beginning in verse 25, if you would look at the scriptures. Now, large crowds were traveling with him, Jesus, and he turned to them and said, now let's pause here and set the scene because we aren't told why Jesus has such a large crowd following him. But the reality is that's nothing new for Jesus. It turns out that when you start healing the unhealables and loving the unlovables and hanging out with the unhangoutables, it it turns out that people start to follow you. People start to show up when you raise somebody from the dead, people have questions. And so certainly there were people there who were there to hear his teaching, who had heard that this was a unique and, and, and different type of teacher. And so they were interested to hear what he had to say. Some wanted to see the miracles. Still others thought that he was the Jewish Messiah, the one who was going to come in and lead the revolt so that uh, the Romans would be overtaken and the Jews as God's people would then be placed in a political and earthly rule. And still others just wanted to see him uh, throw overthrow Rome. They didn't care so much about the being God's people thing. They were just tired of being ruled by the Romans. So if they were, if this scene took place in 2015, you can imagine as we begin to prepare for the upcoming election season, just like with political candidates, with Jesus, if he were walking around today, there would be people who were interested in hearing what he was about. There would be some who were looking for a fix to their life's problems, the broken relationships, the money issues, the the lack of satisfaction. So there'd be some people who are just looking for an answer. Some would be looking for that political champion and still others would simply be there because that's what their family does. They just follow around and listen to people like that. But whatever the reason that those people were there that day, what is clear is that Jesus didn't call them there, that he didn't ask them to come and follow him. But instead, they had chosen on their own to be there. And so Jesus, in the following verses, lays out the cost of what it means for them to follow him. That what Jesus does is unlike a used car salesman or a timeshares salesman, he doesn't wait until the very last possible moment to lay out the cost. Jesus isn't Jimmy, he's Frank. He puts it up front that this is the cost of discipleship. And so, again, as this point in the narrative, as Jesus is moving through, he is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's not going for a family reunion. But at this point in the narrative, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has a singular focus and he is on his way to the cross. And anyone who would follow him, i.e. those who are in the crowd, those who would be his disciples, must be willing to also follow him to the cross. And so as Craddock summarizes this message, Jesus says in the following verses to those following him, he says this, think about what you are doing and decide if you are willing to stay with me 
all the way. Because following me is going to cost you. Again, this is the chief message of Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. So again, let's now read beginning in verse 26. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And in verse 33, So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Jesus, in this moment, uses extreme language. And I don't want you to miss it. I want you to sit in on what Jesus said for just a moment. That if you do not hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, that if you do not hate even yourself, that if you're not willing to give up all possessions, then you're not willing, you are not able to be his disciple. That if you do not, then you cannot. I don't want to miss the moment of the power of that extreme language, but I do want us to understand and to hear as they would have heard, because when we hear hate, it's easy to think that emotional response, right? If you remember having brothers or sisters, or maybe if you have teenage children, you might remember that, that phrase that would come like every 13 minutes. I hate you. You've ruined my life because you took away my iPhone. Or I hate you because fill in the blank. It's not that emotional response to say hate, but instead it's a Semitic phrase meaning to detach yourself or to turn away from. The idea is similar to what you see when two people get married, that there is a changing of priorities. There's a rearranging of, uh, of priorities that what once was to mom and dad is now to husband and to wife. It's that same idea that there's a redefining of priorities. There's a uh, a changing of allegiance that comes to become a disciple of Christ. And so as a disciple of Christ, therefore, uh, uh, your family is no longer your first allegiance. That family doesn't come first. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that when, he, that when they were called to become disciples of Christ Jesus, they left a lot that they were a major source of their family's income, that they were major employees, major players in their father's business. And so for them to leave their father's business was to leave for their family to take away economic resources, was to take away stability for the family. It cost their family, it cost them to become a disciple of Jesus. And so it is with us that Jesus is saying to be a disciple family can no longer be your chief priority, that yourself cannot be your first priority. That your money or your success or your status, no matter what good you may do with it, cannot be your chief priority. That God and God alone can be your first priority. It's uh, reminiscent of the great commandment in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. That Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment in all of Scripture was, said, It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, without reservation, restriction, exemptions, or exceptions, that to love God wholly and completely is what it means to be a disciple. That when Jesus said that you must be willing to take up your cross, though they would have not thought of the cross of Christ, as you and I might, certainly they would have thought of the Roman cross and all that would come with it, that with it would come humiliation and shame, that with the Roman cross would come pain and suffering. 
And ultimately, with the Roman cross, would come death. Perhaps they would come to their mind the teaching in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 that if anyone wants to become my followers, let him deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who will save their life will lose it. But those who will lose their life for my sake will gain it. And in verse 33, when Jesus says to give up all of your possessions, certainly that doesn't mean that you have to give up literally everything that you own, that you walk around broke, poor, hungry, and naked uh, with nothing of, uh, without any possessions. But instead, it's to say, take inventory. It's to say, take a, 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 a test of the things that you own to make sure that the things that you own don't own you. To make sure that your possessions don't possess you, that there are not things in your life that you own, whether it's cars, houses, money, that hinder your discipleship that you would place in front of or prioritize more than Christ Jesus. So if there are those things that you possess that have a greater priority in your life than Christ, then he would say, get rid of those. All of this is to say, again, the point is to say that to be my disciple, you must count the cost and be willing to sacrifice everything. That for those that were following Jesus at this point, it hadn't cost them very much that at this point in the story to to follow along with jesus it's not cost them anything they've just decided to leave what they were doing pack a sack lunch and start walking down the road that doesn't cost them a whole lot but soon that would change soon for them once they got to jerusalem and jesus was was pushing forward to this he was speaking to this that listen once you follow me to jerusalem once we get to the place of the cross it's going to cost you And soon you're going to be asked the question, are you one of his disciples? Are you one of Jesus's followers? And the answer that they would give to that question would carry major ramifications. That their answers would affect their family. That the answer to that question, are you my disciple, once they got to Jerusalem, would affect their businesses, their social status, and ultimately could even affect their own lives. So Jesus is pointing to them saying, listen, once you get to Jerusalem, once you get there, your excitement about following me right now, the the excitement that's in the air of the the parade that's going downtown of this thought of what Jesus could do and might do and their hopes and their expectations, the excitement of that will not be enough to carry you through the question. The excitement of that will not be enough to carry you through the hard times and through the struggles that your hopes would not be enough when things hit the fan to carry you through, that you must be willing to count the cost before you get there and decide is following Jesus worth whatever it might bring. And so Jesus then says, just like if you aren't willing to count the cost and sacrifice whatever it might take, then you are not willing to be his disciples. Now, this can be hard for us to understand because the reality is we are probably never going to be placed in a situation uh, like these guys were in. That the reality is the world is pretty sympathetic to Christianity. That they're pretty sympathetic to, to our beliefs. Now, certainly there'll be things that will, political decisions and things that will come, but we're never, chances are, going to see a debilitating amount of persecution. Uh, and so it can be hard for us to go, you know, I've got to sacrifice and give up everything. So maybe a better way to understand this idea would be for us to understand it 
as this idea of expectations. Would you be willing to follow Jesus when God doesn't operate, when He doesn't follow through on the expectations that you've placed on Him? Sure, you might be willing to skip a party. You might be willing not to have sex outside of marriage. Maybe you're willing to give some money each month to the kingdom's cause or serve on this committee or that. But are you willing to follow Jesus when he doesn't meet your expectations? Let me give you an example. Uh, Last summer, uh, I was in Honduras and I love the nation of Honduras. I love the country. I love the people. It's beautiful. They have these little taco things called baleadas and it's like some chicken and avocado and cheese and it is, I like I mean I love I love these taco things that are really really cheap so you can eat a lot for not a lot it's awesome and anyways I love I love being in Honduras and I was there last summer uh Teresa was pregnant with Jane uh, so she was like negative a month old she was due kind of the beginning of August into July this was the beginning of July uh Harrison was doing his thing going crazy as we've seen that's just kind of his style and so I was there in Honduras and I was leading this mission trip there were 34 students uh, on this trip and we were kind of this traveling road show of ministry. We had some folks that would do uh, women's ministry to some of the ladies. We called it a princess ministry. And we did some VBS stuff for the kids. We built houses, dug wells. And then me and a couple other lunks would take and break baseball bats and bend steel bars and tell people about Jesus. And so it was this great thing that we were doing. It was really, really cool. Um, but one day uh, while I was uh, in, <laughs> I just finished eating some tacos, uh, some baleadas, and, and I come out of the restaurant. I was in the parking lot waiting uh, to to load up in the truck, but all of a sudden my cell phone rings, which is bizarre because it, that in the middle of nowhere, Honduras, I could get cell phone service, but like I drive around some parts of Dallas <laughs> and AT&T can't help me. I can't even get a text message. I'm like, come on. But it, there I am in the middle of Honduras and I, I open up my phone and I see that my wife has called and she's calling me. And I said, Hey, what's going on? And she said, Hey, we need to talk. And she had just come from a doctor's appointment. And so she then began to tell me that uh, after this doctor's appointment, the doctor was a bit concerned because Jane had not grown over the last couple weeks. From the last measurement to this measure, she's not grown. And that as we're getting closer and closer to kind of her grand appearance, she should be getting bigger and bigger. But instead, she's stopped growing altogether. And in that moment, as she began to communicate to me that the, the concerns of the doctor and, and the implications of what this could mean, all of a sudden this weight just fell over me. And, and I started, honestly, I just got really, really angry. Because I, was, I began to think to myself, like, God, are you serious? Like, are you for real right now? Like, I'm in the middle of Honduras, thousands of miles away from my family. I am leading young people, trying to teach them how to be a part of your kingdom, how to take the good news of of your son, Jesus Christ, to the nations. Here I am. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. I gave my life to you in seventh grade and committed to ministry. I've stayed away from drugs, alcohol, all of those things. Everything you've ever asked, I've done. And the one thing, the one thing that I ask you not to touch The one thing that I hope is protected and safe, my kids, all of a sudden I get this phone call at this point in time. Are you kidding me, God? And to be honest, man, I I got real angry. Because God didn't act the way that I expected him to. I expected God to keep my kids safe. And yet I get this phone call. John the baptizer experienced something similar in Luke chapter 7. 
He had been proclaiming the good news of Jesus coming. He had been uh, making and preparing the way. And then he found himself arrested before a court. And he sent word through his disciples to Jesus to say essentially this, Jesus, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's going to come and usher in God's kingdom with this clear idea that if you are, now would be a great time for you to start doing your whole Messiah thing because these guys are about to cut my head off. So if you're going to be the king, if you're going to do your kingdom thing, why don't you overthrow these guys now before they chop my head off? But Jesus didn't respond to John the baptizer the way that he expected. In fact, he responded this way. He told his disciples to go and tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight. That the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. Jesus' response to John the baptizer was, yes, I am the king. Yes, I am ushering in the kingdom. But I'm not going to be the kind of king that you expect. My kingdom is not going to be the kind of kingdom that you expect. And blessed are you. If you don't take offense at me, are you willing to follow me even if I'm not the kind of king that you expect? Are you sure that the cost is not more than you're willing to pay? Jesus goes on then in verse 28, and we'll close with this. In verse 28 through 32, he gives a a series of parables, a, a short examples, and they read this way. In verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build, but he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. That to, if Jesus were walking around today, that he would give an example or a parable similar to this. He would say, how many of you, before you go to Whataburger, and order up a triple meat, triple cheese burger combo with mustard and pickles and jalapenos, McWhatta sides with a, uh, apple pie and a sweet tea and a cinnamon roll for the road. How many of you would not first count the change in your cup? How many of you would not first pull out your wallet and see how many dollars you have? Pull up your iPhone, open up the app, look at your bank account and make sure that you have $13.73 approximately. I, 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 I wouldn't know. But uh, how many of you would not make sure that you have enough money to pay for that meal? Because you know that no matter how passionate you are about Whataburger, no matter how much you want, no matter how much you desire to have that beautiful, delectable, tasty treat, no matter how thankful you are to Harmon Dobson and his great vision down in Corpus Christi, Texas, to make a burger so big you had to use two hands to eat it that would make you say, what a burger. No matter how passionate, thankful, or desiring you were, if you did not have the enough money to pay for that meal, you would walk out of that restaurant hungry because you did not count the cost and you were not willing to pay. You see, in the same way, 
if you and I don't count the cost of our discipleship, there will come a time when our excitement, when our hopes, when our passions will no longer be enough to carry us through. We will turn our backs to God and say, thanks, but no thanks. The cost is too much. Now, I get that as I say this, I get as I say, man, listen, here's the scriptures. This is what Jesus is laying out. I get that it's easy to hear this and go, man, Mac, that's a harsh word. Why Jesus coming like that? Why can't we just be like some sheeps and hugs and love wins and all that stuff? You know, like where, where is that? But is it really so harsh? Is it really such a, a, a demanding message? Because think about other areas of your life. Think, think about this. And, and again, my buddy, Dr. David Pendergrass, uh, articulated this so well, I have to share it. Think about this. If I and Teresa, before we got married, right, we got married at this beautiful ranch. Thank you, baby. We got married at this beautiful ranch. We had this great wedding. But could you imagine if there is, she is coming down the aisle in all of her beauty and glory. And y'all, when I saw her, like I acted a fool. Like I saw her coming down the aisle. I started crying, smiling, laughing. And y'all, I started clapping. <laughs> I started, and, and my buddies, all my football buddies, you know, six foot four, 247 pounds. These guys, they're, they're looking at her like as you're supposed to do, and they hear somebody clapping and they turn around, bowed up, ready to like fight somebody because they're making a ruckus. And they thought it was me and they're like, all right, man, do your thing. And so as I saw her coming down the aisle, just all of her beauty, all of her glory, could you imagine if as she gets there and we're standing there before the preacher, if we're sharing our vows because we're romantic, we wrote our own vows. Uh, could you imagine then if I, as I'm articulating my vows to her, I say to her, baby, I am going to love you for the rest of your life. I'm going to serve you and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to pray for you, teach you, treat you like a princess. I mean, I just get this whole litany of peas because I grew up in the Baptist church. So I just have all these pea things I'm going to pray for, protect her, treat her like a princess, all of those things. And I said, baby, whatever you say, I'm going to do. You say jump. I'm going to ask how high. I mean, whatever you want, 364 days out of the year, baby, I am yours. But on like one day a year, I get to go and do whatever I want with whoever I want. And it's all going to be cool. All right. I do. Could you imagine if I did that? If by some miracle of God, I made it out of that place alive. There is no way that she would marry me. But, and, and no one would blame her, right? If she pulled something out and just started clubbing me with it, no one would blame her because everyone has the expectation that in marriage, there is complete and total fidelity, that there is complete and total commitment that is 365 days a year. There's no off days. There's no off months or timeouts, no off seasons. It is complete and total devotion. And no one would call her a micromanager. No one would call her some type of marital Stalin. They would say she was completely reasonable in her request. And if it's reasonable for my wife to expect complete devotion from me, how much more is it reasonable to expect on God's behalf for us to have complete devotion to him? Why would we call him a cosmic uh, micromanager, a cosmic Stalin? Why would we do that? We wouldn't. It's completely reasonable for him to expect that devotion to us. Because you see, God in the end is not a micromanager. He's not interested in dictating every inch and area, uh, every inch of our lives and, 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 and puppeting, puppeteering our lives. But instead, he's interested in the transformation of our lives. 
Because at the end of the day, that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about this transformation, this restoration. Tobias 5 says that there is no area of life that is not a priority for transformation in God's kingdom. That because the kingship of Jesus applies in the same way to all economic, religious, personal, and political aspects of life. He wants to transform and renew all of us. He is transforming and renewing creation, and we are his crowning jewel of creation. And so, friends, he wants to transform our lives. But to transform every area of our life, we must be willing to give him every area of our life. And ultimately, that was the choice that I was laid out with. That was the, the, the scenario I was laid out with in Honduras last year. The choice to say, if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, if I'm going to follow Christ, I have to let him have even my children. I have to let him have even my expectations, even when he moves in ways I, I don't understand, even when he moves in ways I don't expect. If I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, I must allow him to have even that. And there faced with that choice that night, I was reminded of, a, of an old hymn that goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. You see, friends, to be a disciple of Christ, is to say, I have made the choice to follow Jesus. Whatever comes my way, he is Lord and he is Lord of all, and I will follow him wherever he may lead. Because he is good. Because he's the king who's interested in transformation and restoration, not only for you, but for the whole world. Friend, have you made that choice? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you allowed him to become Lord of your entire life? Not just some areas, but all of your life. Are there relationships in your life that, are, that are, have taken priority over the relationship between you and Jesus? Have there been expectations that have not been met, that have caused you to, in, in some ways, hold back your discipleship, that have caused you to, to hold on to things? That when the rubbers met the road, it's made you say, thanks, but no thanks, God. The cost is too high. Friend, I encourage you today to take inventory of your life, to see if there is any area of your life that you've not counted the cost, that you've not allowed God to take over, to be the king of, and to transform and to restore. And if there is, to let today be the day that you take a step forward in your discipleship. Let today be the day that you make the choice, that you decide to follow Jesus in every area of your life. No turning back. No turning back. Let me pray. Daddy, we are so very thankful. We're so, so very thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you are good and that you're faithful. That you are good and loving and faithful towards us. We thank you that you are a good king. That you are a good father who knows us and loves us who desires to restore and transform us. That you desire to take every area of our life and make us new. God, I pray now by the power of the Holy Spirit 
that you would speak through these words, that you would speak in this time and will reveal to us any area that we've not counted the cost, any area of our life that we are not willing to give over to you, be it expectations, be it past experiences or or fears or doubts, addictions, struggles or temptations. God, would you take all of us Would you be king over all of us that we may be faithful and true and good disciples wherever it may lead? Thank you, God, for loving us. Amen.